Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, church. Good morning again, and uh, happy Palm Sunday uh, to you all. Thank you, Brother Albert, for reading that passage for us. Uh, It's been um, over 2,000 years uh, since Jesus rode on a donkey uh, into Jerusalem, welcomed by waving palm branches, um, one week before his death on the cross. 2,000 years. So the skeptic among us um, will have, may have one question for you and I as Christians, and that question is this, is Jesus really coming back? Okay, 2,000 years have passed. Do you really believe he is coming back? You know, we sing songs, Jesus is coming soon. But 2,000 years, is that really soon? Uh, If you're honest, church, this question, this doubt about the second coming of Christ, it can really trouble our hearts. It can trouble our minds. I want you to think about your life for a moment, okay? Think about today. Today feels not that much different than yesterday, right? And yesterday was pretty similar to the day before that. So if I ask you, what do you think tomorrow will be like, you'll probably say, just like today. Why? Because that's how our lives go. We're so accustomed to the ordinary. We're so accustomed to the routine and the the predictable that it doesn't make sense to expect something different to happen in the future, something so unexpected and supernatural like the return of Jesus Christ. Christ. doesn't make sense. And so it is with this in mind we come this morning to our text in in 2 Peter chapter 3. And uh, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles. We're going to follow along. And those at home, I encourage you to do the same. And as we work our way through this incredible passage, Peter is going to um, answer a few questions for us. He's going to remind us, why do we believe that Jesus is returning? Why? Why do you really believe it? Why? He's going to help us understand why do skeptics and scoffers doubt? Why are there people who doubt that Jesus is going to return? He's, he's going to answer the question of how come we've been, how, how come he, has, he still hasn't returned? Why are we still waiting 2,000 years later before he concludes uh, by challenging us how we should live now? How should we live uh, in, in, in light of all of this? So with that introduction, I just want to pray and ask God to speak to us through His Word. If you can join me, let's pray and ask for His Spirit to speak. Father, I thank You again for this Word that was read. Um, oh Lord, uh, this, uh, the return of Christ is something that we profess and we sing about and, and um, we may pay lip service to, but, but if we're honest, maybe many of us here today, we doubt we don't really know. 
because our lives have just continued the same way day in, day out. And so I pray that as we, as we dive into this text that, Lord, you would build our faith and our confidence in your promise and that it would change the way that we live going forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, the time was around uh, 64 to 67 AD. Okay, I just want you to picture this. The early church was growing, but their leader, the apostle Peter, was in prison. Okay, he was, he was in prison and he was awaiting his execution at the hands of the Roman emperor. And why? Simply because he followed Jesus. So this is where Peter is, and history tells us that he would soon be crucified upside down for his faith. Crucified upside down. But while he was in that jail cell waiting on death row, this Peter, uh, who once stirred multitudes with his sermons, if you remember from our study in the book of Acts, the sermons that he preached, this same Peter is now only able to write down his final words uh, in letters. And so we come to this, this, this text that we're looking at today. It's the last chapter of the last letter Peter ever wrote. And starting in verse 1, take a look at verse 1 in your Bibles. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, he says. Beloved. So who are his recipients? Well, Peter calls his recipients beloved, which means dearly loved. These were brothers and sisters in the faith. These were believers. And if you look carefully, we actually learn that they were the very same believers to whom he sent his first letter, the, the, the book of 1 Peter. Okay? And from that letter, if you look at 1 Peter, we know that he was speaking to Christians who were scattered across the region across the region of Asia Minor. But verse 1 also tells us something else about these believers. Look at verse 1 carefully. How does Peter describe them? He calls them sincere in mind. Sincere. What does that mean? Sincere means genuine. So these were genuine followers of Christ. And so out of his love and his pastoral concern, for these sincere believers, Peter has now written two letters to them. Two letters, the first and second Peter. And both letters have the same purpose. Look at verse 1. What's the purpose? What's the purpose? To stir up their minds by way of reminder. To stir up, to, to awaken their minds, to, to, to stir up their thinking. And what is it that Peter wants them to remember? Look at verse 2. What is it that he wants them to remember? That you should remember two things, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, okay? So this is what Peter wants them to remember. He wants these dear believers to remember the predictions of the prophets and the commandments of Jesus through the apostles. So I hope you're getting where I'm going here. Writings of the prophets and the writings of the apostles. So, so what is Peter really saying here? Where, where do you find the, the writings and the predictions of the holy prophets? In the Old Testament. 
right? In books like Zechariah, where the second coming of Jesus is prophesied. Where do you find the writings of the apostles? In the New Testament, where the second coming of Jesus is referenced over 300 times. So what is Peter saying? He's saying, sincere Christians, remember why you believe Jesus is coming again. Remember why. Why do you believe it? It's not because of wishful thinking. It's not because of betting odds. It's not because of someone's interpretation or someone else's opinion. We believe Jesus will return because it is promised in his very word. That's why you believe it. That's why we believe this. And so Peter is saying, remember that. Remember why you believe it. We believe Jesus will return because God has promised it in his word. In his word. So remember, that's the the first point. Remember. Peter continues. Look at verse 3. What does he say? Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Okay? So remember I told you he's sitting in jail, right? He's awaiting his his own death. And Peter is going to use his last words. To do what? To warn the early church. To warn them. Now, I just want you to think about that for a moment because if you could say only a few words, if you could only say or write down a few words before, a few final words before you die, what would you say? You would say something that was of utmost importance to you, would you not? You would say something that was the most important thing you wanted to share before your life came to an end. And for Peter, this is what was foremost. This is what was most important because the early church was facing a threat that was so dangerous it could undo everything Peter had worked for in his ministry. That's how dangerous this threat was. And guess what, church? It's the very same threat that you and I face today. The threat of what? The threat of scoffers. Scoffers. Now, that's not a word maybe we use a lot today. Do you know what it means to scoff at something? To scoff at something. I want to give you some examples. If you go online and you read the comments section underneath the post, or a photo on Instagram, or, or a YouTube video, or an article. If you read the comments section, you will find lots of examples of people scoffing at each other. Scoffing. People scoffing at people, at others, who believe things differently than them. That's what scoffing is. It means to ridicule someone whose beliefs are different than yours. So you'll see examples online of people scoffing over, over religion over race, over politics. You've read these. Over the pandemic, over masks, wearing wearing masks or not wearing masks, over vaccines, over the lockdown. People scoff at each other when their beliefs are different. And why do they do it? To dismiss them, to dismiss someone else's beliefs, to discredit someone else's belief that you don't agree with. Because you despise what they believe so much that it causes you to mock them. That's what scoffing is. To mock and to laugh and to deride 
at people with disgust and disbelief. So what Peter's telling us is that after Jesus rose from the dead and the last days began, since then the church has been, the scoffers have come against the church. That's what he's saying. And these are people who ridicule what we believe. And I don't need to, I don't need to spell it out, but you know this happens even today. People who ridicule what you believe, who dismiss what the Bible says, who discredit the teachings of God, who despise and mock and laugh at you and me for believing in Jesus at all, leave alone His second coming. This happens. And you may not think it's very serious, but Peter knows how serious this threat really is. Do you know why? What happens when people scoff at you? Do you know what happens? After a while, you start to doubt what you believe. If people scoff at you enough and mock you enough, what happens? You start to doubt. You start, maybe I am foolish. Maybe I am crazy for believing all this. Jesus will come and maybe he's not coming. Maybe, maybe there is no eternal life. Right? Maybe I'm doing all these things. I'm praying and I'm reading the Bible. I'm going to church. Maybe all these things are in vain. This has happened. I'm sure many of you can think, how many people do you know have abandoned faith in God and gone astray because of scoffers in their life? Right? People who ridiculed them and mocked them for what they believed. I want you to um, keep a finger in chapter 3 and just turn one chapter earlier in chapter 2 because Peter tells us who these scoffers really are. Look at chapter 2. And if you just take a look at a few verses, you're going to get a sense that these scoffers are actually false teachers. He calls them false teachers. Now, now when you were a child and you were going to school, how much trust did you place in your teachers? A lot. As children, we don't know any better. Right? We're not yet mature. We, we, We don't have the ability to discern yet. And so... We trusted our teachers to tell us the truth. That's what you do. And yet here, Peter tells us that the early church and us today are being bombarded by false teachers who scoff and who mock and who teach lies to the people, leading them astray, leading them away from God, leading them away from the truth in His Word by mocking, by mocking. So, you're probably wondering... Why would anyone do this, right? Why do scoffers scoff? Why are they mocking? What's their, what's their motivation? Well, in verse, look at verse 3 of chapter 3. Peter tells us their motivation. I, I hope you can see it there. He says, following their own what? Sinful desires. Following their own sinful, in the NASB it says, their own lusts their own lusts. I, I want you to look at chapter 2. I'm going to show you a couple of verses. I just want to give you a glimpse, okay, of who these people really were, okay? Just a glimpse of the, of the immoral lives that these um, false teachers lived. Look at chapter 2, just a couple of verses. Verse 2, they followed their sensuality. Do you see it? Verse 2, in chapter 2 now. Verse 10, indulging in the lust of defiling passion. 
Verse 10 again, despising authority. Verse 14, eyes full of adultery. Just a glimpse here I'm giving you. Greed and insatiable for sin. Insatiable for sin. Now, I want you to stay with me, church, for a moment. If this is the conduct of these people, the scoffers, okay? If this is the conduct of these false teachers, can you guess why they would scoff at the idea of Jesus coming again? Can you guess why? Because if Jesus comes back, they cannot continue to live the way they are. The only way they can continue to live sinful, unholy, and godless lives without fear of consequences, without fear of judgment, is if Jesus is not coming back. Do you see that? Do you see that? Christ returning would be the worst news in the world for them. Why? Because then they would have to give an account for every thought, every word, every deed. And so instead of Believing, they scoff, they mock, they try and dismiss it, they try to discredit it. Any belief in the second coming, this is the heart of these scoffers. This is the heart of the scoffer. The people who scoff at God's word, who ridicule sincere believers, this is why they do it. They do it because their hearts desire sin without punishment. That's why. They want to sin without impunity. So what do they say? Look at verse 4. What do they say? They say, where is the promise of his coming? Where, where is he? Right? You can hear the sarcasm. Where is he? For ever since the forefathers fell asleep or, or died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. Do you remember the argument I posed at, at the beginning, right, when I started? Why should tomorrow be any different than today? Right? This is the argument. They're saying, ever since the beginning of time, morning and evening, morning and evening, that cycle has continued, right? And so, therefore, it will continue like this forever. That's, what that's, that's their argument, right? There's no reason to expect God to intervene. They say, go and read your history textbooks, you Christians. God is absent on every page. Where do you see God intervening in history? Where do you read about him doing something supernatural? No, there's nothing there. How foolish of you to believe that, that Christ will come. This is their scoffing. This is how they mocked. And this is how, the, how they tried to lead the people astray. But Peter, Peter saw through all of this. And thanks be to God. He saw through the false teaching. He saw through their motives. And look how he responds. And this is a little bit tricky to understand, so just follow it carefully. Verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6. See how he responds. He says, but they deliberately overlook this fact. Okay? They're deliberately overlooking something. What is the fact? That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed. It was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And verse 6 that's one example. The second example, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Okay, so now that's not easy to really understand. Why is he, why is he saying this, right? Why is Peter saying this? How, is, how does this respond to their, 
to what they're doing, the scoffers. So just follow me. Remember, in order to avoid judgment, what are the scoffers doing? They're deliberately or willfully ignoring a key fact about God. And what is that fact? That He has intervened in history. That's what Peter's trying to show. He has intervened, and not just intervened. He, he overcame the laws of nature in a way that's unmistakably supernatural. So, so to prove this, Peter is going to give you two examples, two historical, miraculous examples, both occurring by the power of God's Word. Look at the first one. What's the first example? Creation. The earth was formed. Right? Out of nothing, God spoke into existence the universe. So if that's not a change in your ordinary pattern, I don't know what is, right? God intervened, and the earth was formed between upper and lower waters. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 1. What about the second example Peter gives? The flood. In the days of Noah... The world saw a flood unlike anything we've ever seen before or have ever seen since because of the sin of man. You can read about that in Genesis 6. So, so, so what, what is Peter saying? His, his point is God has intervened in history. He has intervened in his creation, and he does it whenever he pleases. And by the same powerful word of God, look at verse 7, by that same word which brought about creation, the same word which brought about the flood, by that same word, verse 7, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the judgment, until the destruction of the ungodly. Okay, are you following his, 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 his argument? So this is not what scoffers want to hear, right? This is not what skeptics want to hear, but it's true. Peter's saying, do not underestimate the power of God's spoken word. Don't underestimate it. Because when God said, let there be light, what happened? There was light. And when God commanded the waters, what happened? The floods came. And so Peter's saying, if God says Jesus is going to return to, to gather the faithful and to judge the ungodly by fire, do not underestimate him. That's what Peter's saying. Do not scoff at his word because he is powerful enough to do what he has said. Many may make promises and fail them, but no, no, no. God, when he says something, he has enough power to do what he says. That's what Peter's saying. As we read verse 7, um, sometimes we get caught up here because we see verse 7 and we see Peter saying, you know, the destruction of the ungodly. And I just have to... I'd be remiss if I didn't share this with you, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Sometimes people try to think that's who God is. God is, you know, some egotistical person up there delighting whenever people die and perish. No, it's not like that at all. That's not the heart of God. He does not delight in the death of the ungodly. But scoffers and false teachers who refuse Christ, who, who, who decline or refuse to believe or to refuse to repent, will face the consequences of sin. They will. They think they won't. They think they can just sin without impunity. No, no, that's not a just God. Peter's saying, no, no, there will be a reckoning. There will be a day of judgment. 
So, having addressed the scoffers, now Peter turns back to the beloved. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. And I want you to realize a beautiful parallel here. I don't know if you already did. In verse 5, he told, he told us that scoffers deliberately overlook a fact about God. Do you, see, do you remember that? Verse 5, they overlooked a certain fact about God. And now look at verse 8. He, he turns to us now as believers, and he, said, he urges us not to overlook a fact about God. It's beautiful, right? He told, them, he told us that the scoffers are deliberately overlooking something, but he's saying to you and me, to the believers, he's saying, do not overlook this fact. And what is the fact he doesn't want us to overlook? Verse 8, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Okay, now, now those who hear me are thinking, where's the math there? That, that doesn't make any sense, right? One day is as a thousand years for God, and a thousand years as one day. Well, remember when we started, I said it's been 2,000 years, right? Since that first Palm Sunday, it's been 2,000 years. How can we believe Jesus is coming soon when so much time has passed, right? That could be a reason why you doubt. It's been so long. But Peter is answering that question by reminding us that God is not one of us. God is not one of us. I love what uh, uh, our brother Keith shared during the worship for that first song, Ancient of Days. God is not bound by time. You have to understand who God, God is eternal. I just want that to sink in for a minute. He is everlasting. He's infinite. Keith shared this too, but just, just think about that. He has no beginning. Everything in your life had a beginning, but God has no beginning. He has no end. So, so when we think about time, we think about it in a linear way, but God is outside of time. So, so when, he sees, when he sees things, past, present, and future, they are always ever before him. So for us, while we're looking ahead linearly, what may seem like a long time from God's perspective, from his eternal perspective, is not long. It's not long. But there's something even more important that I want you to take away from the 2,000 years that have passed, okay? There's something even more important that Peter's going to share. And if there's one verse you can memorize and keep for yourself, it's this verse in verse 9, where Peter tells us the reason why Jesus has not come yet, okay? If someone's asking you, well, why hasn't Jesus returned? Here's your answer. He gives the reason why Jesus, and, and I want you to see that this reason will show you the very heart of God. It is, that's why I say memorize this verse. It shows you the heart of God. Look at this verse, verse 9. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Meaning, God is not late, folks. He didn't get caught in traffic. Okay, there's no, there's no force or there's no obstacle that is delaying God for some reason. There's nothing that's preventing Him from His return. But He is what? What's the word? Patient towards you. You see it in verse 9? He's patient for he does not wish, he does not desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Friends, do you see the heart of God? I hope you see the heart of God here. Do you see why Christ has not yet come? Why hasn't he come to gather the church and to judge the world? It's because of his patience. That's why. It's because of his kindness so that none who are his should perish. That's why, he's, that's why there's been 2,000 years, so that all would reach repentance. So that 2,000 years we talked about at the beginning, it carries a different connotation now, doesn't it? How should we really say it? We should say it's been 2,000 patient years. That's what it's been. It's been 2,000, with each new year is an extension of the window of God's patience. That's what it is. Every year that passes is an extension of the window of God's grace where your loved ones and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers can still repent and be saved from judgment. There's still time. 2,000 years is a, is, is a display of the, of the patience of God. The patience of God. Now we need to be very clear to whom is this patience directed? Okay? Look back at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Who is Peter talking to in verse 8? The beloved. Right? Who we said earlier, who are the beloved? Sincere, genuine believers. He's not talking to the scoffers in this verse. So then in verse 9, when, it, when, when Peter says, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish or that all, and that all should reach repentance, who are the you, the any, and the all? Who? Believers. The sincere, genuine believers. All whom God has elected to save from before the foundation of the world. All of them shall not perish, but will reach repentance before Christ returns. Isn't that a comfort, church? Isn't that an incredible comfort? And I, I don't want you to miss the implication of this, okay? Because it, it has a great implication for what we're doing here. What is Peter saying? Why are we still waiting for Christ's return? If this is the case, if it's because of patience, why are we still waiting? We're still waiting for Christ's return because there are souls among us who have not yet repented. Do you see the implication? There are souls among us who have not yet repented. And if you're listening and you know you are among those souls, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, do not take this time of God's patience for granted because his, his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. This time of patience and kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Which leaves us with one last question. One last question we're going to cover um, this morning. How then should we live? Right? In light of all of this, how then should we live? And Peter addresses it. He starts in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, be ready. Be ready. 
The day of the Lord is coming like a thief, which means it's coming unexpectedly. It's not coming at a time you have prepared for. It's coming without warning. So church, one of the applications here is put away the idea that Christ's return is only going to happen after you accomplish your goals, right? You have some goals. You want to get married. You want to have a home. You want to establish yourself or earn your career or put your kids to school or accomplish certain goals, this, that, and the other. Do not think that Christ's return will only happen after all of that. That's not biblical. That's not based in the text at all. It's not a far-removed thing. We must be ready and prepared today, tonight, because it's nearer than we think. And in verse 10, he says, Peter says, when Jesus does return, there will be no place to hide. See verse 10? There will be no place to hide. Why? Because the earth and the works that are done on it will be what? Exposed. Everything will be laid bare. Right? Which That word exposed in the Greek, it actually means found out by God. It will be found out. It'll be discovered. Everything will be discovered. So, so scoffers, false teachers, sin, evil, all will be brought to light. And, and look at what's going to happen to everything on earth. You know, today, you and I cling to so many things. Our gadgets, our technology, our possessions, our homes, our, all these things that we, we think is so important to us. And look what's going to happen in verse 11. What's going to happen to all the things that we cling on to? What does it say in verse 11? Dissolved. See it? Dissolved. Church, do you see how futile and how pointless it is for you and I to put so much investment and hopes in your possessions and in your houses and in your land when the amount of all of this will be dissolved? Dissolved. And if this is the case, if this is the case, just follow where Peter's going now. If we must give an account for our lives, and if all our material possessions are going to amount to nothing more than ashes, that's the case, Peter asks us an inevitable rhetorical question in verse 11. What's the question? He says, what sort of people then ought you and I to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's, that's the take-home, right? If that's the case, if you're going to have to give an account for everything and everything you're, you're chasing after on the earth is going to be dissolved anyways, what sort of people should you and I be in lives of holiness and godliness? As I was studying this, I had to pause and I thought, you know, if Jesus were to return today, let's say he returns today, is this how and everything is revealed about me. Everything is revealed. You see everything about me. Is this how God will find me? Holy and godly. Is that the words he would use? And maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, no, that's not me. You can be honest, right? If you're listening to me and you're thinking, that's not how God will find me today. I'm struggling. I'm struggling to be holy. I'm struggling to be godly. I'm, I'm indulging in sin day after day. I, that's not how God's going to find me. And if that's the truth, I'm not here to 
disparage you or to discourage you. I want you to see what Peter is saying here. He's giving you the motivation to change. He's giving it to you. What is the motivation? The second coming of Jesus is your motivation to change. It is. The coming of Jesus is your reason to live a holy life, to be godly. Think about your own life. When do you find yourself indulging in sin? Think about the last time you fell into sin. When, what, what, what was in your mind? I can tell you what was not in your mind. There was no thought of Christ's return in your mind. True or false? It's true. There was no thought of Christ returning that day. But if only we would remember this. If we really believe Jesus could come at any moment as God's word has promised us, you will live differently. It will change the way you live. It will. It must. And I'm just going to be just transparent with you. I have to be honest. I have gotten into so many debates about the end times. And I'm sure maybe some of you have too, right? Debating, arguing, you know, how is Jesus going to come back? What's the timing like? You know, and, and we get into these debates. But Peter is rebuking me hard in this text. You know why? Because the second coming of Jesus is not meant to be a theoretical topic that you debate. That's not what it's meant to be. The second coming of Jesus, if you really believe that Jesus is going to return, it will change the way you live. It will change the way you live. You will be eagerly waiting. You'll be looking. You'll be looking even. Like, like, like a son looking for their, for their parent coming home, watching and waiting with faith for things that are not yet seen and for things that are hoped for. That's what Hebrews 11.1 1 says. That's what faith is. We're hoping for eternal life. Are you looking forward to a home in the renewed heavens and the earth or are you concerned only with your home here on this earth that's about to be dissolved? Are you looking forward to a place where sin is no more, where righteousness dwells, all according to this promise of Christ's return? So I want to close here. And as we close, I just want us to remember, these were the final words of the Apostle Peter. This was the last chapter. We've read it, right? The last chapter of the last letter he ever wrote. And in his final words, this is what he taught us. First, you believe Jesus is coming again because God's word promises it. Right? That's why you believe it's going to happen. Because of the promise of God's word. Number two, skeptics and scoffers doubt because of their desires to sin. That's why they doubt. It's not based on reason. It's not based on evidence. It's based on their desire to live a life of sin without fear of judgment. That's at the heart of a scoffer. Third, why are we still waiting 2,000 years later? We are still waiting for Christ's return because God is, what is it, patient towards us. He's patient towards his church, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And lastly, in light of all of this, what sort of people ought you and I to be in lives of holiness and godliness as we wait? I'm just going to share a quote as I close. Um, and the worship team, you guys can join, come up. Thank you. 
Um, the great Charles Spurgeon once said, in reference to this text, he says this, Christ is returning. The king is on his way and almost here. He is at the door. What manner of people ought we to be? How can we sin against the one who is so close at hand? I'll say that again. How can we sin against the one who is so close at hand? Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for this passage. Thank you, God, that on this Palm Sunday, uh, as we remember how you triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, we look forward to when you will triumphantly return to this earth to enter the new Jerusalem. And, oh God, um, forgive us and help us when we doubt. Help us when we scoff or when we mock or when we're mocked at for holding to these beliefs. Help us to have confidence because it is promised in your word. And your word is solid. Your word comes true. Just like you created everything out of nothing and just like you deluged the world with waters when it was as a judgment on sin, you are able to do what you have promised. And, oh God, when we look at how much time has passed, help us not to look at it with doubt, but realize that every year that passes is just a further testament to your patience. Your patience. And let it urge us to realize that among us there are people who are not yet repentant. Help us to be diligent to serve and to share the good news with them, hastening your coming. And finally, God, as we wait for you, help us to do so in holiness and godliness. If we've been struggling to live as we should live, if we've been giving into sin again and again, help us, O oh God, now to remember, stir up our minds to remember that you're coming back again and let that motivate us to live differently. We can't do any of this without your grace, so we beg for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.